Overcoming objections is an important step to winning any sale. And how you approach objection handling is often the difference between gaining a new customer and losing an opportunity. But objections are normal, nothing to be afraid of, definitely not something you leave to your internal team to figure out on their own. On DGU this week, we'll share how we identify new objections, how we overcome them, and how we turn each objection into new marketing content. Demand Gen U is officially in session. Let's do it. So I'll kick it off. This is totally unplanned for, but you were out last week and you logged a lot of driving hours, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. We, um, so we don't like to fly with our dog. Dog doesn't fly very well, but I wanted my wife to be able to come on this one. We can't send the dog anywhere, unfortunately. So yeah, we're going to drive. And we drove 800 ish miles from Seattle area to Utah. Funny enough, on the way there, we took two days. On the way back, we did it in a single day. And so on the way back, it was a 13-hour drive in one single day, which actually wasn't too bad when I shared it with Brendan, my 17-year-old son. He drove probably like six of those hours. And so, yeah, it wasn't too bad. And just so people who are listening understand this, you weren't just driving. Explain why you were on an 800-mile road trip. Well, we were hoping to catch some of that sweet, sweet Utah champagne powder. But despite them getting the most snow they've ever had ever recorded history and three feet of powder three days before we got there, it was full like 50 degrees on the mountain. It was like, it was just the most ridiculous. And I think they're getting snow again this week. So I told my son, I was like, all right, two big ski trips this year. Neither of them panned out with good snow. Colorado, Utah, the two best places to go, really. So next year, I said, we're planning the vacation, but not the location. Like, we'll plan the week we're going to go, but it'll be like the week before when we decide, okay, where is the best snow? Where are we going this time? But we did a college visit, University of Utah. Son really likes it. I actually, my wife and I really liked it too. So I think right now that's the front runner school if he doesn't get into University of Washington. So yeah, we'll see. So I'm not at an age where I'm having to worry about the college application process anymore, but What's the craziest thing that you've learned throughout all of this process so far? Like, I imagine it's different than when I was applying to schools in 2007. Yeah, and maniacally different from when I was in 95 or 4. The weirdest thing to me is most schools no longer require any kind of formalized testing score. So, like, they don't require cool. SAT. I, I, don't under, I don't understand that. So, what does this mean? <laughs> I don't know. But apparently it's somewhat of a COVID thing. Somewhat of it, though, started a little bit beforehand. It's much more, and you can, a lot of schools will let you submit them still, but they'll say it'll only help you. We won't use it to make it work. Like we won't take the score like, oh, that decrements you. But so we'll only use it if it'll actually help you, which I think is kind of interesting. But they're more going for the class load you're taking and the grades you're getting at that school that you're at is the biggest part, plus your essay now and like that part of it. But yeah, so that was the biggest surprise. Like, yeah, how do you tell the, you know, like how do you, because every school is different. So like the classes could be, you know, so how do you normalize that? you got one normalized thing you could use, the score, and they're not using that anymore. And also a lot of the schools now for the COVID kids, I guess, they throw out their freshman year grade even. So that's what I was going to ask because I remember you saying something about that with Brendan. Yeah. So lucky for me, Brendan has a 4.0 since after freshman year. So like freshman year, it was like a 3.6, 3.7. So good, way better than me still. But he has a benefit though, because he really started to like, hard charge it in sophomore year. And he's had a 4.0 since then. And so he'll benefit from that for sure. Cause, and there's schools now 
like the UW here, University of Washington, computer science, you have to have like over a 4.0. And I'm like, how do you even do that? If 4.0 is perfect, there's a 4.2, 4.3. I'm like, how do you get those grades? If you've done everything and you get a 4.0, where do these 4.2s and 3s come? So I'm, it's, yeah, it's interesting. If I randomly looked at the admissions for the business school at IU and there's no chance that I would have been able to get in today. Like <laughs> yeah. straight up, not even no, close. Good UW riddance. <laughs> yeah, no way. I would never get into UW today. No way. Nope. Yeah. It's been a learning experience and kind of fun as well. Well, I don't know how we segue into the actual episode topic, but I love to keep it light at the beginning of each episode. So we'll still have some fun with this as we always do with DGU, but I'll let you get it started. Yeah, yeah. So kind of what we've talked about in the intro, we're talking about objection handling. And it's honestly, I didn't even really, I don't think I even knew that term, objection handling. You can say it and it makes sense, but I don't think I ever even used that, maybe even before I came here. I think it's primarily a sales term. And I don't think like in most of my marketing ops roles, I wasn't, I wasn't helping them help handle objections. And so I probably just really didn't hear about it much, but how about you? Like when's the first, have you just forever known about it? So I've known about it as it definitely being a sales thing, but I think why we've been so involved with objection handling and overcoming objections here, which we'll talk about in a bit is how close of a relationship that we have with our sales team. Because I think at other companies that I've worked at, it's a sales thing. Sales does it on their own. Hopefully they come up with the right answer, but it's not your problem. And that is not how we go about it here at Metadata. Yeah. So let's define it for everybody to get started. So what's an objection? <laughs> yeah, I think there's probably a couple of different ways that you can define it. But a really simple way is this. An objection is something that a prospect mentions that may prevent them from being able to buy or work from you. And it's usually a concern, but something that maybe they're thinking, something that they heard from someone else, but it is something that they are cautious about unless they feel confident in your answer. Yeah. And I think when you say the word objection, it comes with a negative connotation, right? Well, they're objecting to something, but it's more of a gift, I think, right? So if a prospect is objectioning, <laughs> I think of like a judge, objection, objection. They're giving you more information that will help you sell better to them. And so it's a really a gift. It's because imagine the opposite where they have the objections, but they don't tell you. So then they just make up the objection handling, I guess, that on their own. So they create the response of themselves. So I think just by getting in the objections, it's like, that's a positive signal. Like they're sharing with you the reasons why this might not be a good fit for them. Also gives you a great chance to give feedback on that. Is it right? Is that objection right? You know what I mean? Or is it wrong? And they've got some kind of behind the scenes view of this that's not true. And so I think it's a gift. Yeah. And I think when you hear objections and you hear them come up consistently, you start to better understand how your buyers are thinking and what's keeping them up and what they're worried about. So the best sellers and the best marketers pay a lot of attention to what those objections are and use it to their advantage instead of running away from it. Cause it's not a bad thing at the end of the day, it's natural. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause like your fit, your product, you have an ICP, but the ICP doesn't mean the product is actually going to fit 100% of the people that are in your ICP. Right. And so there's still going to be, oh, what about this? Or we do things this way. 
How does your product work with that? And so, yeah, there's even the best looking fit people. They're still going to have objections of what, why it might or might not work for them. And then what about as it comes to com- like the competition? And so maybe let's talk about, I'm not sure how I'm trying to weave this in, but there's some something with competitors, like you might have the same objection or not the same objection, or you might have your products are in the same category, does different things. So how do we think about objections and competition? Yeah, I think the caveat to all of this is I will die on this hill. I think there's a lot of bad product marketing out there, especially in MarTech. And I think buyers tend to hear and read all of these crazy promises. And then if they end up buying a particular tool, they are overpromised and underdelivered whatever results they thought that they were going to get. So when you leave objections up to your competitors to handle and reframe, you're losing control of the narrative and they can really say really whatever they feel like saying. And the buyer may believe what they say versus what you say. So I think rather than sweep them under the rug or run away from them, you need to lean into them or else your competitors are going to control the narrative. And we'll talk in a, about an example that, that we worked on exclusively about that and got really good feedback on later in the episode. Yeah, that's a great point because all it takes is for, let's say, one of your customers who, let's say, churned at some point and they didn't really have the best understanding of how your platform worked. They go talk to your competitor and say one thing. Guess what? That AE believes that as the gospel truth. And now they're going to tell that to every other person that they talk to that have, has used metadata or that other platform in the past. And they're going to they're going to assume it's gospel because they heard it from somebody that they trust and it could still be off. And so, yeah, that's another really good reason. You don't want to lose control of that narrative to your competitors because like we probably do the same thing. Well, here's something about one of our competitors and we'll just keep espousing it. And we might not know if it's really accurate. We didn't hear it directly from the competitor. We heard it from a previous customer who might be salty with them about it. So, yeah, not the best way to funnel information to prospects. No. And I think the example that you just mentioned there, there's probably three claims that I know I've heard about of our perceived competitors. And I heard about these claims internally. I have no idea if they're actually 100% accurate at the end of the day, but I know our sales team mentions it and takes the high ground, but you got to control the narrative. Yeah. I'd love for them all to be the truth, but they're probably not. (laughs) <laughs> Although some of them we heard directly from customers that we did trust. And so like, maybe. So obviously over time, you're going to hear a lot of different objections, but a lot of them are probably going to start to bucket in similar areas, right? So you're going to have 10 customers asking about this one area, five customers asking about this over here. And why is it important to really identify those common ones? And then what do you do about that? Yeah, I think and this is very fresh in my head just because it's been a priority for us over the last, I would say, month and a half-ish at Metadata, is I group them into two different buckets. I group them into the first bucket being what our sales team is hearing in new business conversations. So the prospect hasn't actually signed on for a tool yet. And sometimes those objections might be a little bit different than what the second bucket is hearing. And The second bucket is objections around renewals and what your customer success team is hearing. Sometimes the objections are 
the same. Sometimes they're similar. Sometimes they're very different. But when you are thinking through everything that's in your head before you sign on to buy something up front and then comparing your thought process of maybe it's a year later and you're up for renewal, you're going to be interested in different things. And I think you're going to be motivated by different things and scared of different things as well. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Let's just get into some of the things that we've heard, I guess, or maybe let's talk about what we do. So how, what are some of the objections that are we going to, let's get into some of these. Like, what are some of the objections that we've heard about our platform? We can both list a couple off. I'll just go off of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think the first one that I would mention is, can't I just do this myself? Like, why do I need a tool to do this? And that's something that, especially given in the economy right now that we are hearing very often. Another one is, isn't this what an agency does? Can't I just use an agency for this? And then without sharing or stealing the rest of these, I'll let you steal a few here. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the ones is these platforms already have these like native ways of optimizing campaigns that like we're talking LinkedIn which is a Microsoft company versus like metadata. So how could metadata be better at optimizing campaigns than the channel itself? And I know that was a huge one that we would get a lot. And we struggled to answer it because it was like, well, uh, er, mm, look at the data. Just the data says it, but we couldn't explain why. It was like, look, we're getting better performance in, in metadata versus native channels. But then it was a fairly technical, I won't spill the beans on this one either, but it was a fairly technical reason. And a lot of people, a lot mm. of salespeople just didn't have that on the edge of their ability to explain. Well, not only that, but if you think through that specific objection, up until where we are right now, if you asked 10 different AEs and 10 different CSMs, you're going to get maybe, maybe not 20 different answers, but probably 10 or 15 different answers. So it's all about having a consistent talk track for overcoming those objections and making sure that there's a, a single answer from metadata, not a bunch of people weighing it because that's what we were doing for the longest time and it didn't work. Yeah, totally. And I think the other interesting thing in our case is the fact that we don't have a category. So we're not an ABM solution. We're not a this, we're not a that, we're not a what are we thing. And so the objections, they can't compare us easily to, oh, I see, you're trying to build a demand base or you're trying to build a sixth sense or like, no, we're not. But why are you in the ABM category over here in this G2 report? And so I think some of it for us just becomes more innate because we are a new category of software. There's not a lot of history with other companies doing what we do. So then I think that just begets more questions that come up about how does it work? I've never seen this before. You're not making a better A or a better Z. You're doing something new. And so I think that just probably comes with it a lot more objections probably to begin with, because I've never seen something like this before. So that probably makes it a little harder for us too. Yeah. And I think they all come from, or at least what I think, they all come from a similar place in that our buyers want to understand what box to put us in. So they're raising these objections because until they feel confident in the answers that you are giving them, they don't know what box to put you in. And it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if they've asked the AE and then they get on a demo and they ask the SE and there's now two different answers. That gives them even less confidence than they had before. Oh, to the same question to two different people, I got two different answers. Hmm. 
So yeah, it's important. I think that's really why it's important to identify these common objections, make sure you have a specific way of answering those that is standardized across the company. And this is why these, this stuff should probably come from product marketing, right? Because it's like they're product questions. And ideally, most of sales can answer them accurately, but it's not the first thing we ask sales to do, right? We want sales to be closers first and maybe product experts second or third, maybe even sometimes. And so I think that's another reason why you don't want to leave it up to everybody else. You really want a standard definition for as many of these common objections as you have. Yeah, and I think a slight nuance in that is that we rely on our sales team and our customer success team to help surface some of these objections to us. You can listen to gong recordings. It's easy to get lost in there. But by having good and honest and tough conversations with your sales and CS teams, they can at least raise, hey, I keep hearing XYZ objection. We got to have an answer to this. And then product marketing is on the hook for everything else that follows to getting a solid answer and competent answer over to the rest of the company. Yeah. And there are a tons of places, like you just mentioned, where these objections, where you can find these objections. Sales is the obvious one. They're going through all of them trying to sell people. But then, like you mentioned too, you've got folks, current customers. Now they're getting the real world experience of what it's like using your platform. And now they have other objections or questions too. And so I know we get a lot of ours from CS and we end up handling those by marketing, but they've come, they've sourced out of CS, but yeah. Customer success, sales, people that just give random feedback to your marketers. Like there's a lot of different places, people talking online, people talking in your community. Even if you've got a customer community, you can grab objections from that. You can grab objections from your support tickets, where are most of our support tickets even coming from? And is there things we can do there to help alleviate those objections? So there's a lot of places you can look for internally to find these things. I think one that you didn't mention, though, is leadership team meetings, because I think there's been a fair number of those that have come up in leadership team meetings. So how does an objection come up in that meeting and how does that conversation go? Usually it comes up when somebody's trying to explain why they didn't meet their goal. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I wasn't able to meet my goal because all these, these people have these problems with our product. I've actually seen that happen before. Oh, we can't sell this because of this objection or, you know, kind of pointing the finger a little bit. So probably maybe a little bit of that where it's like, hey, we got to really pay attention to this objection because we literally are blocked on some customers, either renewing or selling to customers. Yeah, it's mostly the ones where they're being... It's enough volume of it. Like, I don't, we probably don't hear the onesie twosie. Like, that was the first time I've ever heard this objection from this one customer. We probably don't hear those. But once I think in Alan, who's heads up our CS organization, once he's heard enough of it, then it comes up in a leadership meeting. It's like, hey, this is a new one I'm hearing, or hey, I'm starting to hear this, or we're starting to hear more of this. And I don't know if it's quantified or more just qualitatively, I'm hearing more of this, but it seems to be on. It doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to be like sky is falling. Oh, all these things, they do see, sometimes there's a little bit of that, but most of the time it's like, okay, no, this is actually happening. And but you and I, Mark, you, we can usually like, oh, okay, yeah. I don't think we ever really hear one. We're like, well, why would anybody have that objection? You know, it's like, oh, okay, I can, okay, I can see that. Yeah, the key though, is to not get lost in working on every single objection that comes up truthfully, because then you're just like an objection handling monkey and that's all you work on. 
you got to look for trends and I think it's more qualitative and maybe you can quantify it in some way. If you're looking at close lost reasons on deals in Salesforce, that's more of a lagging indicator, but you have to trust your gut with this and just have conversations with sales and CS and whoever's working with your customers. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So how do we think about these internally and what are we doing? So let's talk a little bit about that. So we've talked about some of the ways we find out about new objections or we just hear them. We talked about obviously listening to sales calls, coming directly from prospects, from existing customers, maybe our own internal teams. But what do we do with it from that point? So let's say we hear a new objection. What do I, how do we start in marketing? How do we start to triage that and think about it? Yeah, I think the difference here at Metadata on our marketing team is that we lean into them and address them head on. And I haven't worked at other companies that agreed with that mindset. I don't know the exact reason, but it was one of those things where let's not market these objections or let's leave this for sales calls. When I think the reality is we know when you buy tools, when I buy tools and when our buyers buy tools, they don't really like talking with salespeople. So if you're waiting for your buyer to talk to a sales rep to address that objection, you've probably waited way too late and way too long for them to believe in whatever answer that you're giving them to overcome that objection. So we look at it as a way to create content, run campaigns, address these head on. And it's different. It's not for everybody, but I like it. Yeah, and honestly, like, a lot of these, and we'll talk about some of them, but a lot of these articles, pages that we've built to handle these objections, some of them become really popular and very, like, even organically, not even just salespeople sending them, sending people with that objection to that page. It becomes more ubiquitous and it's, oh yeah, a lot of people had the same question. Maybe a lot of them didn't ask it. And now we've just got this content and so people can actually get through it. And the way that you really, you, Mark, have built these pages. They just speak really well. They answer the objection really well. It's very easy to understand. And like, most importantly, we're not, we're just taking the truth road. It's like, we're not, if we're not good in this area, we will say that. We won't try and, well, look over here. Don't pay attention. Just, it's over there somewhere. We don't try and shirk it like that. So yeah, I think that's, I think that's the best approach because also, Let's say you do try and skid around it. People will just sniff that out right away. And they're like, oh, they're not even really addressing this head on. They're just dancing around it. And we don't, we've never been those kind of marketers. Or even worse than that, they buy your tool and then they use it and it doesn't do what they need it to do. And then they churn. You don't want that for you or them. That's worse. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually had a customer I met with not that long ago who's churning or at least downselling to us like a smaller product of ours. They told me even, they're like, I shouldn't have bought the full platform in the beginning last year. He said, your guys' content said exactly to me like, no, you shouldn't buy this for this reason. I did it anyway, because I wanted to be part of the club, you know, and I thought we were gonna be doing more of this stuff. And sure enough, here I am a year later, wishing I would have just listened to your content. Now I'm downselling myself to Met. I'm like, all right, so even when you do the right things, Sometimes the customer I, themselves. I, this is the first time I'm hearing this. That's, that's, yeah. yeah, no, it was. Yeah, it was. Oh, I won't say the name of the company. It's like a really yeah. good customer of ours too. Like they still are really happy with us. And they, the funny thing was, and if they're listening, they'll know. But they take it on themselves. They're like, no, your sales rep 
tried to not let me buy, <laughs> tried to not let me buy this. He's like, I don't, I think this is the right, this is right for you. And it's less money and everything. He's like, no, I want the full thing. So anyway, it's funny how like, yeah, you even do the right thing. Sometimes they'll still make the wrong choice, but I chalk that up a little bit to just how good our marketing is, but you know, who knows? So let's talk about that as the first example of content that we've created. So we published a blog post. I think it's almost two years old at this point, and we've been updating it periodically as things change with the market and, and with our product. But it is six reasons to not buy metadata. And I'll be honest, with most of our marketing, I find ideas that I like from other companies, and then I take what I like and then just make it better. And I think you take the same approach too. Mm-hmm. Steal and then put your own spin on it, or as I like to say, borrowing. So we borrowed this idea from Gong. And the gong post, while it was an interesting idea, the reasons were shit. And they were like, and I've got it up right now. And I doubt Devin's listening. I was just talking to him on Friday. But Devin, (laughs) if you're listening, this isn't directed at you. But first one, you're already closing way too many deals. Okay. Who says that? That's a little cheeky. Oh, man, I got way too many deals. I guess I shouldn't buy this. Yeah, too you many You know deals. exactly what's going on in your market. No one ever knows what's exactly going on in your market. None of your yeah. deals slip. Everyone's deals slip to some <laughs> degree. Everyone on your team is hitting quota. No, I don't know the exact stat. I think it was some bravado, but like the number of people that are hitting quota right now and even last year, not even close to that. And yeah. then what was the last one? Last one was your team hates collaborating. So I liked <laughs> the intent behind the post, but then I hated the reasons because it was like, this isn't really helpful at all. Yeah. This is just being no, like, I can say no to every single one of these. So, okay. Yeah. What now? <laughs> yeah. Then we went back and I think this was something that you actually wanted to do for a while, right? Really jogging memory here. You wanted to just plaster this everywhere and say, Hey, we're going to be totally transparent. This is why you shouldn't yeah. buy from us. And we actually use legitimate reasons. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yep. I want to get those people out of the funnel. <laughs> yeah. And the reasons, and I've got it in the outline here, were I don't have the time or resources to update my ad creative and content. A very real problem that many marketing teams have without a lot of resources. I don't spend at least 20K a month on paid social ads. We're not going to let you buy a platform that's expensive unless you're spending at least that much because we ourselves would never recommend that you buy an expensive platform when you're not spending a lot on paid ads. I don't care, or I sorry, I care more about lead quantity than quality. Maybe some people believe that, but you all want good leads at the end of the day. I'm looking yeah. for an all-in-one ABM solution. We don't believe in yeah. all-in-one ABM solutions, although some people do. I'm just looking for demo requests or trial signups. Yeah, that's what everyone wants, but you you can't just buy a tool and magically pump out demos and trial signups. And then the last one, I don't want to experiment with campaigns. And I think that's one that it's taken us a while to overcome that objection because the average marketer, and let's be real, most marketers are not experimenting. They just don't want to experiment, they're scared to experiment, they don't know how to experiment. And those are all honest objections that we were running into. Yeah, yeah, and I remember when we launched that thing, got a lot of fanfare, a lot of people loved it. Internal sales reps loved sending it out. You know, it was one of the one of our better pieces, so we all publicized it as well on LinkedIn. And yeah, people were like, man, this is how you should do this. These are real reasons, these aren't just like, 
hand wave reasons that everyone could just like nod their head or I don't know, nod or shake their head to whichever one. So yeah, I got a lot of, it was really popular. I don't know how it's done from an organic perspective, but I'd imagine it's probably pretty well viewed. I know just by way of how we promoted it on the site, it was one of the most viewed blog posts in 2021. And then I think in 2022, it was probably a top five blog post as well, because yeah. when are you ever reading honest, transparent content from someone that's encouraging you to not buy us? Like never. Yeah. And I think that's why it works. Please, please don't buy. Because another reason that we did that is because renewal rate is honestly more important to us, is a more important metric to us than net new sales. And we wanted to really make sure we're getting the right people in the door that are going to renew with us a year later. Because if we don't, we're actually shortchanging our primary metric. And so it becomes even more important for us to select people out of the process and get them out than for them to see a shiny object, this new shiny object, and just buy it and then not have success with it and then churn a year later. That just goes against what we're trying to do. So on the same topic then, this is something that we've recently put out to address that same objection is metadata versus, we say metadata versus native, but metadata versus ad channels. Can I just do this myself in ad channels or have my team do it? Why do I need metadata to do this? And that was something that I think kept coming up in renewal conversations. We were hearing it from CS and then I think it also came up quite a bit in leadership meetings as well. Yeah, we were, yes, especially as a recession hit and people were looking for places to cut budget. People were like, can't I just do this on my own? And we didn't have a standard answer. Like, I guess you could, but then do you want to spend 50 hours a week just pushing buttons in the channels? And we didn't have a great response. And also it wasn't just about using one or the other. It was like, well, which one is actually better and how do they work? You know what I mean? How do they work differently so that I know that more. And yeah, it was a big objection when the recession first started hitting. And we even had a customer that said that they churned and then they came back three months later. They're like, you're right. I can't do this on my own. So I do need to, I do need the metadata platform. And so I don't know if we based any of it on that experience with them, but I know we've had customers that have actually tried and they're like, Oh, nope. If I'm going to do this amount of experiment, if you're just going to put three campaigns in and let them run to the same audience. Yeah. You don't need metadata, but that's not good marketing, you know, either. And so, yeah, it was, you just gave me a, I know exactly who you're talking about the customer. I'm going to reach out to them after this episode, when we're done recording and try to get a very pointed testimonial about how they <laughs> signed go. on, left, document. <laughs> came back and realized that they couldn't do it on their own. But I think for us, it was, again, here's metadata, a little series B startup. And we are telling you B2B marketers to not trust best practices from Facebook, ever heard of them, LinkedIn, ever heard of them, Google, ever heard of them. Like, why would you ever believe metadata versus these big behemoth tech companies? And what we needed to do was really show what the problem is with running campaigns natively and what looks great at surface level. But once you dig a little bit deeper, you're not able to do some of these things that we metadata can do. And oh, by the way, here's data to back it up. And it's been live for, I think, maybe three or four weeks now. So it's mostly qualitative feedback and it's been very positive so far. But 
that's the type of thing that usually we would run away from. And it, it was difficult to come up with because we didn't have a talk track. So we had to interview customers. We had to interview sales. We had to interview CS. We had to interview sales engineering. What was funny was, and whoever listens on those teams to this episode may know who I'm talking about, but there are three people who should definitely know the answer to that question that are involved in the sales process and renewals. All three people had different answers and we used it as a forcing function to get everyone on the same page and then just have that consistent talk track for the company. Yeah, and what also helps is when you, let's say you have a fairly technical concept like this one that we were trying to explain, you can use visuals in your document to help with the explanation that people just talking about it might not be able to get through. It might be something that's just much better represented in a visual. And so you put it in a piece of content and you can use that. And I know that's one of the things we did to make it easier to understand, like, why does metadata push campaigns in this way? Why does the native channel do it this way? And it was one of the just, okay, we could talk about it all day long, but probably a little bit faster and better. We just show you, you know. I don't think this page that we created, and we'll link out to it from the show notes, I don't think it lands as well if it doesn't have that visual, because if you try to explain it using written words, it is really hard to do that. And even if you just threw the visual up on the page that we're talking about and had 50% less copy, I still think that you would understand the difference between the two because of that visual. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And one of the other ones we did that I think, I wanna say this one worked because we don't really get this objection anymore or the question very much. And so a while back, we would always get the question of like, well, what's really different between you and Sixth Sense? And there are- I love this, I love this one. <laughs> yeah, we're not even in the realm of the same kind of a platform. But again, because we called ourselves an ABM platform for a year or so, we had initially got roped in with them, but we have like, probably still a third or maybe even more of our current customers also have a license to Sixth Sense and they use Sixth Sense for one thing and they use metadata for another thing, but we still had so many people asking what's the difference. And truth be told, our sellers weren't very well equipped to answer that question, to, to handle that objection. And so this is one of the first ones that you worked on after that six reasons, I think, if I'm right. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that one and how you approach that one. Yeah. So. Like I said earlier, I think just in general, there's a lot of promises as far as what particular MarTech tools can do and what they can't do. And I think our buyers thought that they could get everything that they needed out of Sixth Sense. And what we were trying to do was figure out, okay, some of our best accounts use Sixth Sense with metadata. What are they doing that we don't know? How are they thinking about this that we just don't know about? And I started interviewing a couple of them. And I think I interviewed probably five different customers. And it was very clear to me after having those conversations that Sixth Sense has great intent data. They do. And you got to be able to use the intent data. And what Sixth Sense still struggles with is using and activating that intent data in your marketing specifically not giving your sales team high intent accounts and letting them do their thing. So what we did was we took some of the inspiration from the original Drift versus Intercom post from back in the day that Dave Gerhardt had worked on. And the inspiration that we took was shout them out, be honest and 
about what they're good at. Don't bash them, take the high road. So what do we say front and center on that page? They have great intent data. We're not arguing that, but that's also not the space that we play in. So by talking to customers and really thinking through how they look at the two tools and how they get them to play together, that was an eye-opening experience for me because I learned things that I didn't even really fully understand without having those combos. Yeah, had we been able to take, I think it was a cab meeting we had where we just asked the cab and most of the cab meetings. I know, cab exactly, meetings, I know exactly what you're talking about, so keep going. That was one of my favorite cab meetings ever. Yeah, most of the cab participants at that point happened to be Sixth Sense customers as well or former Sixth Sense customers, so they were very familiar. And man, what they said on that call really curated and crafted our positioning of this difference because they were so clear about when they, and these are marketers, when they use Sixth Sense, because again, Sixth Sense is also for salespeople. So we're talking about it mostly from the marketer's perspective, but they really gave us, if we could have disguised their voices and disguised their- Thinking of the National Geographic, like drug shows, the drug wars where they're like morphing people's voices. Yeah, just disguise their identity. I would have just, I wanted, I honestly tried to find a way that we could use that recording. Like I was really trying to figure out like, how do we do this without sounding like a-holes, you know, at the same time. But this is from, this is people that are just literally talking about exactly how they think about it and how they think about the differences. And it's so spot on. But I think you probably used maybe quite a bit of that in the document anyway. Yeah, I think I I did two things. And there's one thing that I haven't mentioned yet that's really the key to making all of this work. The first thing is using that to build the outline of what is going to live on that page, what is the main objection, what's the messaging that we're going to use, and then what are the examples of how we do it. And then the second thing is getting really contextual social proof for these objections and not just finding happy customers and putting them on the landing page, but saying, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Customer, I want to better understand why you use metadata with Sixth Sense. Explain that to me. And when you hear and read something like this on a page, and then you see social proof that is backing up the claim, it is so much more believable at that point because it shows that you've done your homework and you're anticipating what your buyers are thinking. Yeah, I mean, we wanted to create a partnership with Sixth Sense and say, hey, let's co-sell. Like we got a lot of customers that are getting benefit from leveraging your data in our platform. And we, we don't have that partnership, but that's okay. Cool. Well, we could talk about this. We have a couple more of these, but I know we're running out of time. So we'll cut it well, short today. A little we're bit. we're, oh, we're cutting it short, time. but no, no, no. About the last example, because this is one of my favorite metadata mm-hmm. stories yeah. in general. How did we know the Sixth Sense versus metadata landing page landed well? Yeah, so apparently some of our folks had a meeting with Sixth Sense to talk about, I don't know if it was talk about partnership or some kind of, some opportunity there with product or something. And they mentioned it. Yeah, it came up and- The meeting was, I think, within a week or two weeks of the page going live. So it was fresh. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, and they'd known about it. They knew about it, that's for sure. And they, they let our CEO know that they were like, but they never said anything like, that's not accurate or they never said that. And that's what we were most like tuned in for because we wanted to make sure it was accurately represented. It was just, I don't think they were super happy with it, but <laughs> never said it was not accurate. So I think we got it. <laughs> All right, I'll let you go then. But no, this is fun. All right. Thanks everybody for listening again to DGU and we will see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Demand Gen U. 
Demand Gen U is brought to you by Metadata, the no BS marketing OS. B2B marketers use Metadata's marketing OS to drive more revenue without all of the manual and repetitive work. From running paid campaigns to personalizing web experiences to optimizing everything to revenue, Metadata automates all of this. This means less time spent on low-value tasks and more time spent on strategy, creativity, and driving revenue.